This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. On Money FM 89.3, The Washington Report with Nirmal Ghosh, U.S. Bureau Chief with The Straits Times. Money FM 89.3. Good morning. It's The Breakfast Huddle with Elliot Danker and Ryan Huang. Now, in his first foreign trip since becoming U.S. President, Joe Biden attended the G7 summit in the U.K. over the weekend. Top of the agenda, China, climate change and COVID-19 vaccines. So the summit's now officially over. Uh, final communique was released. What has been agreed upon by the seven wealthiest economies? Let's find out more from Straits Times U.S. Bureau Chief Nirmal Ghosh. Uh, Nirmal, good morning. Let's uh, dive into it. The G7 agreed to counter China's growing influence by offering developing nations on an infrastructure plan that could rival President Xi Jinping's multi-trillion dollar Belt and Road Initiative. Could you tell us more about how this would work and how it's being driven by President Joe Biden's campaign to compete economically with Beijing? Hi there. Good morning. Right. So as you said, this is to challenge China's BRI to provide an alternative. And what is being emphasized is transparency. No favor sought a democratic approach compared to an autocratic approach and a focus on climate health, digital technology, and gender equity. All areas commensurate, if you will, with what is seen as America's values. And to demonstrate that liberal democracies working in concert can get things done. The Biden administration is calling this a Build Back Better World, using what Secretary of State Tony Blinken calls a, quote, inflection point to pool the resources of all of the democracies to invest in and get the private sector to invest in low- and middle-income countries to strengthen their health systems, their infrastructure, their technology. But to be honest, the nuts and bolts of this are not quite visible yet. The White House's fact sheet on this noted that the current status quo is inadequate, and one of the things they will do is bring together and leverage financial instruments to build infrastructure, for instance. That is seen as a big opportunity, a big gap. The infrastructure need in the developing world is estimated at more than $40 trillion. The U.S. will mobilize overseas infrastructure financing through existing bilateral and multilateral arrangements and work with Congress to increase development finance. That's the plan, at least, and it will take time. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, Nirmal, we've got climate change. That was also top of the agenda at the summit. The White House announced that the G7 group will promise to move away from coal plants unless they have technology to capture carbon emissions. Uh, what are some details of this plan? Yes, G7 leaders will commit to an end to new direct government support for unabated thermal coal power generation globally by the end of this year. Canada, Germany, the UK, the US will collectively commit up to $2 billion to climate investment funds focused on accelerating this transition from, again, unabated coal in key developing countries and also invest in technology training and infrastructure to enable this transition. Heavy industrial sectors like cement and steel will play a key role in this transition. The G7 leaders also announced an industrial decarbonization agenda, a platform to accelerate innovation, deploy decarbonization technology and harmonize standards. And the leaders will also emphasize sectoral decarbonization in power, transport, agriculture and buildings, for example. That means looking at all of the above in part to get coal out of the energy mix. The target is to get to net zero emissions by 2050 halving collective emissions over the two decades to 2030, increasing and improving climate finance to 2025, 
and to conserve or protect at least 30% of our land and oceans by 2030. And they will also align their long-term and short-term climate goals in a manner consistent with the 1.5 degrees Celsius global warming threshold. That is, remains the aim. And to achieve that, they must really eliminate coal. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. All right, Nirma, what else stood out for you from the G7? Well, one was the billion vaccines plan, though that will be by the first half of next year. Another is to impose a global minimum tax of 15% on companies to reduce the competitiveness of tax havens and to make sure some of these giant tech corporations can't simply book their profits in some tax haven. The U.S. is championing that. The transition from coal, of course, was significant, though it is still not clear what China will do. And there you have another outcome, which is explicit language on China. The last time the G7 leaders met in 2018, there was no mention of China at all in the joint communique. There was no consensus. This time around, the communique spoke of collective approaches to challenging non-market policies and practices by China, which undermine the fair and transparent operation of the global economy. It said the G7 will cooperate where it is in the mutual interest on global challenges, climate change and biodiversity loss, for example, but will also call on China to respect human rights and fundamental freedoms, especially in relation to Xinjiang. And it mentions rights and freedoms in Hong Kong, and it mentions concern over the East and South China Seas. It repeats the line that no country should be unilaterally changing the status quo. The fact that China was mentioned, and in these terms, is significant because some of the G7 have been reluctant to take issue with China. Some have good relations with China. But as Secretary of State Tony Blinken again said here on Sunday, there is a common denominator that these democracies must deal with China from a united position. This G7 has removed doubt over the unity and cohesiveness of what might be called this anti-China coalition. On the line with me this morning is uh, Straits Times U.S. Bureau Chief Nirmal Ghosh. Nirmal, let's uh, move away from G7, get back to the United States, where lawmakers have introduced five bills aimed at limiting the power helped by big tech companies. Now, the bills were drafted after a 16-month investigation into the powers of Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook. Could you walk us through these bills and how they'll tackle big tech's previously unchecked growth and dominance? Right. So as you said, this has been a long time coming. There have been a lot of congressional hearings and so forth and talk about regulating or breaking up big tech. These bills address data. They address mergers. They address competition. They strengthen laws to hold the tech monopolies accountable. So this 16-month investigation by the Antitrust Subcommittee produced a 449-page report which concluded that some companies charge high fees, they force smaller customers into unfavorable contracts, and they use so-called killer acquisitions to grab expanding markets and keep rivals out. Some of the companies have already been hit with lawsuits claiming they have violated competition law, so they are in court as we speak. So if passed and signed into law, they could force some of these companies to divest some of their assets. I say if passed because there remains a process. The bills will be referred to the House Judiciary Committee, then sent to the House for a vote, then the Senate, and finally to the President's desk. And you can be sure there is going to be tremendous lobbying to shape the final bills. Already some critics are saying they may be unconstitutional because they target selected companies. But the momentum against these sort of big tech monopolies is growing. 
Nirmal, I want to look ahead to later this week. U.S. President Joe Biden will be meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Geneva um, midweek Wednesday, in fact, uh, I believe. It's been revealed that Biden will give a solo news conference after the meeting. Right now, I mean, what are we hoping here? What kind of expectations are on the table, uh, you know, where a better working relationship between the two countries will be built? Not much. In fact, the opposite may be true. After... Putin and Donald Trump seemed to get on quite well, as Trump tended to do with other authoritarian leaders. President Biden is going to be careful not to give any impression of being cozy with Putin. That's one reason for the solo press conference. President Biden will tell Vladimir Putin that the U.S. seeks a more predictable, stable relationship. And if they can have that, then there are areas of mutual interest. But if Russia continues what Secretary of State Blinken again on Sunday characterized as reckless and aggressive actions, the U.S. will respond forcefully. And he cited sanctions against Russia and against Russian officials in the U.S. over election interference, over the solar wind cyber attack, and over the poisoning of the Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny. In recent weeks, we have also had ransomware attacks against U.S. companies that have apparently originated in Russia, not necessarily state-orchestrated, but by criminal gangs in Russia. The U.S. will want to see some action on that. And Joe Biden will be going into the meeting having met with America's allies and also after the NATO summit in Brussels. So he will very much be arriving in Geneva from a position of solidarity with allies rather than any sense of misplaced optimism. This is sort of a return to methodical diplomacy rather than shoot from the hip summitry. But at the end of the day, there remains great and visceral distrust of Russia in the U.S. Russia is in fact the traditional enemy, not China. I don't expect that to change. All right, we've been speaking with Straits Times U.S. Bureau Chief Nirmal Ghosh. Nirmal, thanks for your time. We'll catch up with you again next Monday. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.